Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Kettle and Fire. You may already know that this is my go-to bone broth because it is shelf-stable, it's easy to use, and it's delicious. But you may not know that Kettle and Fire just released brand new bone broth-based soups, which make it even more convenient to eat healthy on the go. Plus, they save a lot of time when you're trying to feed the whole family on a busy night, and they are delicious. They have miso, tomato, and butternut, and they're all really, really good. Plus, they have a 20-hour slow simmer process for their broth that extracts an insane amount of protein. 10 grams per serving, and this creates a collagen-rich broth that is great for hair and skin and nails. My favorite part is it only takes a minute to heat up any of these broths or soup on the stove, and I can keep a case in my pantry so it's there anytime I need it. Right now, you can save 10% by going to kettleandfire.com forward slash mama, M-A-M-A. The discount is already built in, so just remember that link, kettleandfire.com forward slash mama. This episode is brought to you by Mother Dirt, a vital and unusual part of my skincare routine. Here's the deal. Most of us these days are too clean since modern hygiene can deplete beneficial bacteria on the skin. But bacteria are natural and they're vital to our health. Our gut needs bacteria and so does our skin, our largest organ. Mother Dirt has a mist called AO Plus Mist that helps restore good bacteria on the skin by using their patented ammonia oxidizing bacteria or AOB that consumes ammonia on the skin. A fun side effect, ammonia is the stinky part of body odor. So many people, including me, find they don't need to use deodorant as much. I love that all of their products are gentle and use only natural ingredients. They're plant-based, so they're safe for the whole family. You can save 20% on your first purchase um, by going to motherdirt.com forward slash wellnessmama and using the code FREESHIP20. Again, motherdirt.com forward slash wellnessmama and the code FREESHIP20 in all capital. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and this episode is going to be super important for parents, but actually surprisingly not just for parents because I am here with Dr. Sam Shea, who is a chiropractor focusing on functional nutrition and functional testing, but who has walked his own journey to overcome a 25-year addiction to video games, a 15-year addiction to sugar, as well as overcoming insomnia, gut problems, and mood issues. And those are all things I get a ton of questions about, but especially the gaming side, because that's obviously a very popular thing in today's world. And a lot of moms email me with questions related to that. And Dr. Shea helps gamers and those with gaming disorder unplug from their screens and get back into their lives. And he also coaches concerned families and friends of problem gamers on how to support them. So I think it's going to be a fascinating episode. I cannot wait to dive in. Dr. Shea, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Katie. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I know there's a lot of concerned parents out there around um, problem gaming. And as someone who was a gamer starting at age um, you know, eight, nine, and had it for 25 years, uh, I-, I can speak to uh, the kind of the whole life cycle of video games from the perspective as a child all the way up through an adult. And I'm happy to really share kind of the, the insights of what's going on inside the mind of a gamer and also how to get out of that particular digital trap. 
I cannot wait because um, my brother was a gamer, is a gamer. Um, I don't think he's ever struggled with addiction, but it wasn't something I was ever that attracted to. So it's not something I understand well. But now that I have kids, I realize it's something they may have an interest in at some point. Uh, and I know a lot of people who are very interested in gaming. But to start, I'd love to hear your story because I, I don't think I can drop a line like a 25-year addiction to video games without asking you to give us some context on that. So can you, if you don't mind, sharing your personal story? Sure. Uh, I'll the the condensed version is that um, my gaming started as a means to escape stress and escape boredom. So uh, my parents had a pretty terrible divorce when I was six years old. Um, it was so bad that one of my sisters ended up in a hospital with a bleeding stress ulcer. And my other sisters dealt with the divorce in different ways. I dealt with it by having one hand on the remote controller soon to be game controller and the other hand in a bag of sugar, whether it's Kit Kats or Hershey's or, you know, breakfast cereal, which is basically glorified sugar. And uh, so to make the connection early, literally the, the, the cross pollination of sugar use and video game use literally go hand in hand for me and for a lot of other people. And I use video games. Um, I got exposed to video games when I was like eight or nine. And I used it to escape from the, the troubles of the divorce as well as dealing with bullying and um, social isolation and rejection at school. So I would come home and just numb out in front of a screen. And I also used it to get out of boredom because I, I found school very boring um, when it wasn't um, emotionally harrowing. And, you know, there, there may be parents who are listening that, well, my kid has a great home life, they love school, but they still play video games. They're not stressed at all. Well, one of the most sinister, stressful thoughts I believe on the planet is I'm bored. And the reason why I say it's sinister is because people don't realize that I'm bored is a very stressful state uh, to be in. People look to avoid that feeling of boredom and video games are literally the most plug and play way to escape boredom, uh, at least in today's society. So what happened was that I, I mean, I started playing video games, you know, very, this is like Sega Master System, NES, and then later on the Game Boy and Sega Genesis. And I mean, some of these consoles people may not be familiar with because they're so old, but it's just basically walking through the whole arc of playing consoles to portables to computer games. And then I started internet gaming actually in the early 90s. This is before Ethernet. So this was all dial up when it was just like letters and numbers representing what you were doing. I played one game called Medivia where it was text only. If you didn't type fast enough, you know, if you were like, uh, you know, you're out there in the wilderness and you're like a basilisk fires a fireball at you. If you don't type attack basilisk fast enough, you're going to die as your digital character. So uh, people talk about oh, all the benefits of video gaming. I was like, well, I can point to at least one benefit is I learned how to type really fast. I'm not sure if it was worth the 25 years, but, you know, something. So I played online games, online internet games, social games, and I even I even begged my sister at one point in like 95 for money to buy a digital character. So the idea of spending money on digital gaming, um, I did that as early as 1995, and it's just kind of increased from there uh, in, in terms of worldwide, you know, pay to play or, or just spending a lot of money on it. And... Then I got involved in another game called ADOM, which took about two years of my life. Um, and then in college, 
this is when Ethernet was first available, and this is where games like EverQuest and Counter-Strike and Unreal Tournament were really popular. And I would witness fellow uh, members in my dorm like just spend eight hours a day playing EverQuest and like actually do shifts eight hours and then they have another person do an eight hour shift and like they'd actually do shifts to farm various equipment and loot and whatnot. And then when I went into chiropractic school, uh, I was still playing ADOM and kind of solo games uh, during university. And then in chiropractic school, I got introduced to the online free, uh, what are called flash games, which are basically uh, Nintendo and Sega Master System quality games from the late 80s, early 90s that are available for free now by the hundreds and thousands online. And they just make their revenue through advertising, um, the advertising columns on the side. And I decided in April 2014 to stop gaming. And the what happened was that there was a uh, women's expo that I was going to present at um, and I was going to talk on video game addiction. And it was a 5,000 person expo in New Zealand. And it, it didn't really sit right for me to be playing video games yet talk about video game addiction. So I stopped. And uh, at the expo, it was really interesting. I had uh, one of the best booths where everyone had to pass by, not only to get in, but also to get out. And I had a big banner that says, help your child's video game addiction. And what was really interesting is that, can you, uh, Katie, can you guess how many of the 5,000 um, mothers and grandmothers and aunties that came through proactively came up to my booth to seek help for their child's video game addiction? I don't know. I would guess it's a, a decent number just because I hear from a lot of moms who are concerned about this, though. Three. No way. Three. Only three. And the the rest looked at the sign, uh, looked at uh, help your child's video game addiction and got really like had this really interesting expression of kind of like shock and fear and like quickly turn and walk the other way or others came up to me and were defiant just just with no warm up. It just just came up to me and started defending their I didn't say anything. They just came up and started verbally arguing with me. Um or the other or the parents would say, oh, they're fine. They'll grow out of it. They're fine. And, and I actually wrote a 4,000 word article on my blog on the five ways parents use video games as parenting tools, how they work and how they backfire. And what I realized is, and I had, by the way, I had both my parents and two of my sisters read this article before I published it because I wanted them to, I said, I want this to be fair, not an attack piece. And they all read it and they said, it's fine. Please publish it. And basically what I got from that experience was that uh, parents use video games, again, not maliciously or anything. It's just like video games are a way to have an instant reward structure. You know, you do good, you can play. It's an instant punishment structure. If you don't do this, you'll take it away. It's a way to uh, give a timeout, whether like it's a cheap, reliable babysitter. So you can put the kids in front of a video game and just give yourself as a parent a break, whether long or short term. And then the other reason that was given was one parent bragged to me, says, you know, I'm I want my kids to play video games because I can track them wherever they are because I put tracking software on their iPhone. And I know my son always has his I know where he is at all times because he always has his iPhone on because he loves his video games. 
And the parents also said that, well, I rather that my children play video games instead of get into um, drugs, uh, risky behavior, uh, gangs, or other high risk behavior. Uh, so they said video games is, you know, I know where they are at all times. They're indoors. They're they're safe. I'd, I'd rather this is the lesser evil, and I'm confident I'll grow out of it. Uh, so that was that was their reasoning, which I can understand the logic. And that's what the article goes into more depth about where it works and where it backfires. But the three women who came up to me who said, yes, they have a problem with their kids and video games and want help is they all had the three exact same scenarios. Their kids that were boomerang, they came back from college or university, had no job, had no real social life or romantic life. And we're just staying in the house playing video games all day, not going anywhere, and got very reactive and verbally um, abusive towards their mothers when the mothers tried to exact discipline on them to take the video games away. Uh, one one woman even expressed concern that her son would get physical uh, if she did not if she tried to take the video games away. So it, it was very startling to to have that contrast of where the state now grant where the state was of video games and parenting now granted this was uh over four years ago and i think the culture has shifted since then um into more recognition this is a problem particularly with the meteoric rise of games like fortnite um league of legends overwatch and other kind of more online massive social gaming Wow, there's so much I want to unpack about what you just said. Um, but first, I want to establish a little context. So again, as someone who never really understood video games or never thought they were interesting, I guess, I, I never really tried them much, even as a kid. Can you explain psychologically and, and also just from a behavioral standpoint, what makes them so addictive? Because um, like I said, it's not something I have firsthand experience and a lot of moms listening maybe don't, like those weren't as around as much when we were kids. Um, we had the old school NES, I think, and I never played it. But what is it about them, especially the new ones that makes them so addictive? Well, there, there's a bus, there's six major reasons. Number one is that they're interactive, is that they're actually engaging. And so there, there's a participatory nature of it. it it's, I mean, video games are, a, are they're a subset of screen-based behaviors. And I, I categorize them into interactive, passive, and mixed. So interactive are things like video games. You're actually engaging with it actively. Passive are things like watching movies and television and mixed is social media where you can either be passive or proactive in your consumption. So video games, they're fundamentally interactive. Otherwise, you're just watching someone game. The other reasons that they're immediate is that literally you can start a video game with a push of a button and they are integrated and accessible, which would be the third reason why. So they're, they're immediately you can immediately get jump in, but you're also accessible from every piece of technology has had a video game uh, capable of being woven into it. And there's also exclusive technologies, you know, like there's consoles, but you've got iPhones now that have video games woven into it, watches, their VR, like glasses, uh, computers, um, every piece of technology has video games woven into it. So they're everywhere. The other reason why they're so addictive is that they're repeatable. Uh, either you play it the same way or you can play it with different strategies or different methods. These so-called like open worlds, like Legend of Zelda was, I think, the first open world game where you can just wander around and do stuff without not in a nonlinear fashion. Like you can just repeat the same game in different ways. 
Um, they're also novel, meaning that there's always new games being put out onto the market. Now, I know the comparison of video games to recreational drugs is, is a landmine, uh, a minefield rather, but you know, it takes years and decades for a new street drug to hit, but it takes a month or two for the next new game to come out. So there's always new material and better and better material as technology and graphics advance and only just get more interesting. And then the other reason why they're so addictive is actually neurological. There is a reflex in the brain wired through the eyes and ears called the tectospinal reflex. The tecto refers to the portion of the midbrain uh, where there's some special circuitry to pay attention to rapid changes in color, light density, and movement. So think of um, a police siren, like everyone will immediately target with their eyes, uh, the flashing police lights because it's moving, it's alternating colors, red and blue, and the, the, the brightness of the lights is getting brighter as the light goes towards you and dimmer as it goes away. And that's, in, that's intentional because the eye will automatically get drawn to that. And that's a hardwired reflex from as hunter-gatherers. If you're walking in the bush and you see a flash of orange out of the corner of your eye, it's out of the corner of your eye. You're not actually phobializing or focusing on it. But if you see out of the corner of your eye, your eyes will dart immediately to that side. You don't know what that was, but your eyes will automatically target that rapid movement, the color orange or the shadow, that, that change in light density and brightness just kind of moved. That's a, that's a hardwired genetic reflex to protect you from imminent emergency danger. So when you look at a video game, what is a video game? It's rapid changes in movement, rapid changes in color, and rapid changes in brightness. And that's why you can have people, kids, adults, whatever, literally glued to the screen because the, the, that reflex is constantly being fired to stare at something that's rapidly changing because your body interprets it as a potential danger. And then on top of that, you have the layered interest and excitement and novelty and accessibility and repeatability of the video game itself. So it's, it's like this neurological reflex is layered on it as well. So that's, that's, those are the six major reasons why video games are so addictive. Wow, that makes so much sense when you explain it like that. And I'm curious too, I feel like you touched on this a little bit, but I feel like the societal perception is that there's maybe these like teenage boys that are really sucked into video games and that's the main demographic. And it's usually these like shooter games or like I said, it's not my firsthand things. So I don't even know much about it, but um, is that who you're seeing who's actually at risk or are there other segments of the population that are equally at risk of video game addiction? Yeah. So the stereotype you're referring to is the stereotype of under 18 males who play war games, shooters, and fighting games. And what will shock a lot of your listeners is that according to the Electronic Software Association's 2018 statistics, we're talking this year, uh, under 18 males who game is only 17% of the gaming population. So for contrast, females over 18 comprise 33% of gamers, which is almost double the number of male gamers under 18. Now, people over 50 
comprise 23% of the gaming population. Some of your listeners may be very confused by these statistics because when the issue of video games comes up, we conjure in our minds the stereotypical male playing fighters, war games, and shooters, and so on. But it's the genre that's different. So my, my mother, a retired medical doctor, I mean, she would play for hours. You know, she's well beyond 50. Like, she would play for hours Boggle on her iPad or Scrabble or other type of digitized board game. So it's the genre that differs. For the females between 35 and 50, it, the, the genre is the micro games like Candy Crush, Diner Dash, Angry Birds, and so on. And then the, the other types of you – know, other age groups um, and genders, there's just different types of – uh, genres that people play from small apps to consoles to computers to whatever it is. So the, the stereotypical gamer is not the male under 18. That's just the stereotype. And I think the when we think of someone who has a, a gaming disorder, we have to broaden our perspective on who those people might actually be. That is fascinating. And yeah, again, makes so much sense. So um, can you also explain, because this is something that came up with reader questions, the this whole vicarious gaming thing, or like I know people who watch other people play video games, even online. Can you kind of explain what that is and why that's become so popular? Sure. So vicarious gaming is is also called surrogate gaming. Um, it's It's gaming by proxy or bystander gaming. There's a lot of different terms for it. Or secondary gaming. Basically, it's watching some other pl- some other people play. Now, there's some like late night hosts like Jimmy Kimmel who thinks it's absurd. Um, and he's been public about this, and and I can understand where he's coming from. But you know, people watch people playing chess, like people watch people playing sports, and there is this disconnect, particularly amongst the older generation, of how can watching someone play a video game be as impressive as someone watching watching someone play chess or sports or anything else. And the answer is, is that if you actually, if, if people realize the amount of skill that went into these world-class gamers, they would appreciate how difficult it actually is. But I'm not, I'm not defending vicarious gaming. I'm just like giving, giving some perspective as to why these world-class gamers are world-class. It actually is very difficult to get to that level. Vicar- the reason why it's so interesting um, from vicarious gaming. And, and I call vicarious gaming the dubious nicotine patch for video game disorder because when I stopped gaming in 2014, uh, I started watching a lot more gaming on YouTube. And I realized very quickly, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, I'm using this as a nicotine patch and it's become its own problem. So the the, the appeal to watching vicarious games on YouTube or Twitch or wherever is number one, it may lead to additional gaming. Like that's how I got started on a game called Adom is I watched my friend Ira play it and I was like so interested, I really wanted to play it. And then I lost two years of my life playing this game. The other issue is that you can watch it from a very analytical standpoint of how different players approach the same puzzle or boss fight or whatever in very different ways. So you can actually learn and see different strategies play out you can, if you're trying to play a different way, you can use it as study material. Um, the other danger of vicarious gaming is watching quote unquote epic clips because there's some, 
I mean, this speaks to why it's so appealing. So there's some video games that are generally more interesting than most major movies. I mean, some games have a bigger budgets than most movie films. Uh, I mean, for example, the God of War series has like some of the most incredible what you call boss fights between known mythological creatures like like the Greek gods. Like you see a full on colossal size battle between the anti-hero Kratos and the god Poseidon or Hades or Zeus or whatever. And it's a very engaging thing to watch, particularly when there's multiple strategies to employ. And then Vicarious Gaming, watching on YouTube, you can also use it to scout different games you may or may not be interested in. So it's, you can use YouTube to check to see if you want to get into a series or if you don't – you finished a series or uh, one section of it, but you want to see how it's how the sequels are turning out. You can just flick on YouTube and watch you know, two, three hours of someone play the expansions or the sequels or the downloadable content known as DLC and see if it's worth engaging in, actually buying and playing it. Um, the other is that you can get really engaged with the personalities of the online streamers. Like, and to give people some context, like how, how can you connect with an online video gamer? Well, just think of America's Got Talent. Half of the show's appeal is not the talent. It's the four judges and their, uh, shall we say, idiosyncrasies and the drama that unfolds between them. So too, in Vicarious Gaming, you can get really interested in the personality and history and, and engagement with the person you're streaming with. Like you got the guy named Ninja, who's like the now a, a household name amongst the families who play, who have kids who play Fortnite. Um, you had PewDiePie, who's, argu who's arguably the first real worldwide um, video gamer um, who, who rocketed to fame. And people just get engaged with the people who are playing uh, because then they become almost like an extended friend in some sense because you know, begin to learn about them and, and, and know them. There's also the appeal of trailer surfing that the video games, like with the movie budgets, they're also making extremely high end, very appealing, very engaging video game trailers. Um, if you don't believe me, just go. I'm not, I'm not saying you don't believe me, but it's like the listeners, like if, if you want to see what I'm talking about, just go on YouTube and put in video game trailers and watch some of them. And you will be absolutely gobsmacked by how high end some of these trailers are better than most movie trailers. So the whole world of vicarious gaming is its own world. And it's it's problematic because of how engaging it is for its own separate set of reasons that if even if you're not playing, and that's why I call it a dubious nicotine patch, because it's it in of itself can become problematic. Wow, that's I'm so fascinated but the idea of this, and as you're talking, I'm also wondering, so you've mentioned that for a lot of, especially ch like younger children, but for anyone, this can be a remedy for boredom, or it's a way to find, it sounds like, kind of a connection, um, because they feel connected to the game or to other players, or they are kind of wrapped up in this world. Do you think this is also partially symptomatic of modern society and that lack of connection that so many of us have? Or, um, like, I'm curious if you have any remedies 
to the parents listening that you would suggest to kind of address those two things, especially the the boredom that happens and also that needing that connection? Because that's obviously a very normal and healthy desire, especially in childhood, is to connect. But in a video game, that definitely isn't the, the most natural way that it would normally happen. So any advice to parents who may be seeing those changes in their kids? Well, I, I think... Uh, yeah, lot, lots of lots of things I can recommend, and and the first one is to to actually understand the signs of a gaming disorder, and uh, like like actually having a checklist to see is there a problem here or a potential problem here. So the the first one is like there like there's there's nine major signs that have been detailed by the American Psychology Association. Nine signs of potential gaming disorder. So there's nine of those which I'll cover, um, but then there's three additional ones that I've come up with that I modeled after the CDC's definition of of heavy and binge drinking. And again, the connection between video game use and drinking is is a kind of a minefield, but you'll you'll see in a moment. But but there's there's things you really got to as a parent. Is there a problem here, or is this just casual gaming that's just fun and it's not actually problematic? So the first sign, first of the nine signs to look for, according to the APA, uh, preoccupation, like is is a person, whether it's yourself or a child, just constantly thinking and planning about the next gaming session. Now, I definitely went through this in my throes of video game addiction, just always thinking about gaming all the time. The second sign is withdrawal, meaning signs of discomfort or side effects. If you stop, I absolutely had major anxiety and would dive further into my sugar use if I had my video game privileges taken away. Um, the third sign is tolerance, meaning like you need more stimulation, like you just get used to whatever. Like, for example, like the old games of NES back in the early 90s are now viewed as campy or retro and not as engaging or thrilling as they used to be, you know, 20 plus years ago. So you need more stimulation, more faster, better graphics, and so on. The fourth sign is you can't stop or can't reduce. Like if people try to stop but can't, that was certainly me. I, I tried to quit, but then I just go back, especially if there was a new stressor that emerged in my life. I just jumped back into video games as the known anesthesia. The fifth sign is if you or your child are giving up activities for video games, like not wanting to socialize, not coming to dinners, uh, eating at the family dinner table, and not wanting to be on vacation, or if you're on vacation, all they're doing is playing video games. The sixth sign is continuing despite problems, whether it's physical pain in the wrists or the neck or missing sleep. Uh, there's even a condition called Wii-itis, like the Nintendo Wii with a little hand controller you wave around. People got repetitive stress injuries from that. Um, seventh one is deception and covering up, uh, hiding or lying about your gaming. Like I would actually tuck a towel under the bottom of the door to cover, to mask the glow of the computer in the late night so my mother wouldn't see me gaming from the light coming underneath the uh, door. Uh, lying about, like, oh, I'm just going to do homework, but actually it's going to play games. Or I'm just going to sleep, but then they take their iPad or their gaming device underneath the covers, which definitely happens, uh, which is what I did. Eight is escaping adverse moods, which is using video games to cope with anxiety, depression, anger, resentment, or any other type of negative emotion. I include boredom in there as well because I view boredom as a negative emotion that people don't recognize as a negative emotion. And the ninth sign by the APA is risking and losing relationships and opportunities. So has gaming become so problematic that it's sabotaged like 
whether it's grades or job opportunities or family events or anything else, has it actually caused damage? So that's those are the nine signs according to the APA. My three signs are a bit more measurable because I wanted something that uh, any parent or any person could actually sit down and calculate, is there a potential problem here? So the three signs are uh, one, do, do you or your child or family member or friend game more hours than you sleep on any given day in the in a month's period? So like, oh, I slept eight hours, but you gamed nine hours. That's a problem. Oh, I only gamed for five, but you slept for four. So no matter how you slice it, if you compare the hours of sleep to the hours of gaming, that is an absolute measurable sign that there may be a problem. The other sign is based off of the CDC or the Center for Disease Control's definition of heavy drinking. So according to the CDC, and, and I, you can look this up on the CDC's website, heavy drinking for males is defined as over 14 drinks a week or on average more than two drinks per day. So I just replaced the term standard drink with standard hour of gaming. So in my book, anyone who games over 14 hours a week is a, quote, heavy gamer. It doesn't mean they're addicted. It means that they're a heavy gamer. Just like if someone drinks over two, uh, over 14 drinks a week, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're an alcoholic. It just means that they're a heavy drinker and you need to have another look. And to see if there's other, you know, those other nine signs at play. The third sign, as I scrolled up to the definition of binge drinking on the exact same page on the CDC website, and binge drinking defined for males is over four drinks within a two-hour period. So I just translated that to gaming for at least four hours straight without any two-hour break within those four hours to, quote, detox. So if someone games for four hours straight, that's, quote, binge gaming. Or if they game for two, have a one-hour break in and game for another two, that's still binge gaming because there wasn't at least a two-hour break to, quote, detox. So those are the three measurable signs to look for a gaming disorder, gaming more hours than you sleep, over 14 hours of gaming a week, and going four hours straight without at least a two-hour break in between. And if the, any number of those signs are at play, then you have to look at then the other nine signs that the APA has put out if there's actual the gaming disorder going on. So that's the first thing I would recommend to parents is to just really have a look to see if you, a family member, or your child, or a friend actually has a sign of a gaming disorder. In regards to other things, other things that parents can do, uh, number one is to remove all gaming devices from the bedroom. That is, that is absolutely required because the risk and temptation of people gaming late at night, hiding the devices under the sheets and playing or getting up as I did and just playing on the computer and tucking a towel into the door, that's very real. And if people's sleep get ruined by gaming – then it becomes a vicious circle because people then wake up feeling tired and exhausted and cranky. Then you're feeling more emotionally anxious or whatever, and therefore wanting to gain more to numb out from the lower emotional resiliency because you're just more emotionally vulnerable if you're sleep deprived. So it becomes a vicious cycle. 
The other way is to not game after 8 p.m. or ideally even earlier because that same tactospinal reflex that keeps the nervous system engaged triggers a stress response, which makes total sense. If you see a flash of orange out of the corner of your eye, you know, several thousands of years ago, you want your stress response system, your adrenal system, your, your sympathetic nervous system to fire just in case it is an actual tiger that's about to jump on you. You want to be ready to go and to sprint away as fast as you can. Those same reflexes trigger the stress response in the human body when you're playing a video game. So it's, it's actually amping up the stress system, making it harder for people to go to sleep. Now, people may fall asleep you know, due to sheer exhaustion, but their stress system is getting amped up. The other thing that – I mean I have an article – other thing is to not play alone. Like I have an article on my website, you know, the, the holiday survival guide or the weekend survival guide for gaming disorder where you can actually tier – how many hours you or your friend or your child or, or whoever plays. And so if, say, you have a maximum of four hours or three hours a day of gaming on a weekend, it's like three hours solo gaming. But if you're playing with someone online that's kind of somewhat social, then you can give them four hours. Or if, they're, if someone's come over to the house and they're playing together in the same room, you can give them five hours. So you can scale the amount of time they game based on the level of social engagement as a way to try to somehow bake in human interaction as a compromise. The other way is to simply just cut one day of video games a week. That's like a digital fast, so to speak. There's also apps that use to block Wi-Fi or block games or block websites the other it's a bit more cognitive is to kind of like chart out one's future. Like, where am I going to be in five years if I play this level of gaming every day for the next five years? Where am I going to be in my professional life, my social life, my personal life, um, my family life, and so on? Another way is just simply to ask for help, uh, whether it's social support from family or from others, coaching, training, uh, ebooks, articles, and so on, just to get better educated on how to deal with any gaming disorder, whether it's your own or a family member or friends. And last, last you talked about connection, that the urge to connect is very real. And this is another reason why vicarious gaming is so appealing is because you can connect to not only the activity the person is doing, but the person who's doing it like Ninja or PewDiePie or whoever. But the drive to connect is very deep. I mean, human beings are social creatures. I mean, I, I recommend anyone who's listening to us to read Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe, uh, to really get a deep, deep sense of the need and the drive for human beings to connect. And if you're asking me, well, how can we, you know, bring in real connection to replace video games? That's not a very easy answer and it's also not a very necessarily comfortable answer because that would require A, some really strong discipline and rules around video game engagement to which parents listening to this may get some very serious blowback from their kids of restricting video games. The other is that it may require some real uh, per personal introspection on the part of the family to see are we actually engaging enough as a family um, or are we all just living our individual lives under the social construct of being called a family? Is everyone doing their own thing or are we actually coming together regularly, whether it's for an evening dinner or 
weekend outings or whatever it is. And then that's a question of looking at, am I as a parent or as a family member or as a friend really carving out time to do things with this other person in a meaningful way? And uh, and a lot of times that's also very challenging because a lot of parents work jobs or both parents work jobs or one family parent is absent, uh, either totally or partially. Um, just as my father was, I only saw my father every other weekend and most of that was based around video games. And it requires, you know, my, my father and I have discussed this, like I, he, he admits he dropped the ball on not engaging with me enough, uh, instead just kind of putting me in front of video games. So it's, it's not a very easy answer, particularly when kids our age and adults our age are becoming more and more digitized. And for some people it may not even be video games. It may just be social media and they think, oh, well, I'm being social. I'm on social media. I'm not playing video games, but they're still engaging in a screen with something digital as opposed to another human being in front of them. So that question of connection is really complicated and can be frankly really uncomfortable for people to address because it requires some pretty, pretty firm introspection. Um, so I, th I think that's, that's a longer, uh, more difficult conversation in some ways. Yeah, I think you're so right. I, so how many times in life is the the best thing, perhaps not the easiest thing, or it requires a lot of work on our part. But I do, I see that um, having a digital business myself, but I see that the we're so connected sort of digitally, but we're also increasingly less connected with actual people. And that does take more work and it takes time and there's no app for that. You have to just um, put in the work and put in the time. And for us, that's meant creating a family culture that hopefully our kids want to continue to be a part of, that we do things adventurous or we do things that prevent boredom together. And we'll see, we don't have any teenagers yet. So I'll definitely keep everybody posted as they get older. Um, but I, and, and I hope this is not opening a can of worms, but I really want to get your take on this. And I got some reader questions about this too, which is, do you see any connection um, with gaming or gaming disorder and, and leading to other risky behaviors? Because you always hear that argument made of like, especially especially first-person shooter games and leading to violent behavior? Or is there even a connection between just that obsessive behavior and en engulfing so much in one activity and other risky behaviors like a drug addiction or you mentioned sugar addiction? Um, what do you think of that connection? And is it something to worry about? Oh, okay. So that's, that's, that is a can of worms, but I'm quite, I'm quite comfortable with opening cans of worms. Um, so to me, there are direct activities that are immediately associated with screens that are immediately yoked and or as I should say clarify potentially yoked together at the hip or at hand and the first of that is sugar and because I didn't quite interview because we didn't actually record it I wish we did but I spoke with a professional gamer uh, she was she was part of the um, a championship gamer for a shooting game they were called the frag dolls which is a, a very clever pun on a name of a, a group of female gamers. But she said gaming professionally became way less fun as soon as Adderall entered the professional gaming world. Um, so there's actually a doping issue in the gaming world uh, from professionals. Connected to that is there's an immediate connection to sugar because when you're, you're using you're using sugar to get quick energy to keep gaming and be excited. And you don't have to deal with the quote unquote inconvenience of cooking, which is 
apropos, especially for your already, look, I send my patients to your website all the time to the recipe section. Like I say, if you want recipes that are time tested and field tested, go to Wellness Mama and go to the recipe section. So for your listeners, obviously, who know, I mean, I, I plug your website all the time to my patients because of the recipes. And it's a bit ironic that I'm talking about video game addiction because the last thing a, a hardcore gamer wants to do is cook because it takes away time from gaming. So they reach for sugar, candies, cereals, anything in a wrapper, these god-awful energy drinks. So there is that. It's not necessarily that they are addicted, in, in air quotes, to sugar, but it, they're yoked. And it becomes its own problem. Um, the other thing that is related can be a quick jump into pornography, um, particularly because of some of the ways that uh, characters are depicted in uh, female characters in particular are depicted in video games. There can be an arousal response um, to and fetish, fetishization of some of the characters. In fact, it's quite overt in certain games like um, Soul Calibur, where they intentionally make incredibly suggestive female characters um, as part of their marketing. And it's not that hard nowadays with high-speed internet to look at something online and then quietly switch to a private browser to look at pornography uh, very quickly. The And so it, it's not an immediate and guaranteed association. I want to make that very clear. But the potential, because it's with literally within reach from a click away, makes it a lot easier to yoke those two activities. In regards to uh, violence in the real world, when we're talking about video game violence in the digital world, I think statistically there's not really a connection to be made. Because if you look at the popularity of Fortnite, and we're talking a company that made almost $240 million like last month or the month before, and you're talking about the most popular games like League of Legends that's a violent-based game. You've got tournaments with um, Injustice League and even with Unreal tournaments or shooters and all the rest of it. Statistically, you don't have hundreds of millions of children running out to the street and shooting people. It's just, it's just not statistically bear out. It just doesn't. Um, when you look at, and and when you look at the people, the kids who do become shooters, and and there's many people who have written on this and have published on this. Um, there's so many other factors going on, like this social isolation that that they feel outside the digital world, which is one reason they're going into the digital world. I certainly felt the pressure, the social isolation, and the urge to play. Um, there's social isolation. There's rejection by whether it's families or or the opposite sex or the gender you're attracted to or whoever, there, there's that rejection and you're feeling like, oh God, then it becomes like this nihilism. And then there's the, the, the unspoken issue of pharmaceuticals that are in, I think, nearly 100% of school shootings that, uh, that no one wants to talk about. These, these SSRIs where they're either just got on them or rapidly changed their dose or rapidly came off of it, which affected their impulse control mechanisms and their mood. And I, I, I am just stunned by the lack of honest discourse about that influence um, on people who choose to engage in shooting violence. And you've got, you've got all these other factors at play and to blame video games. And look, I'm not 
supporting the yes we should have as bloody as possible a video game and it's all fine I'm, I'm not saying that it's just but to blame video games is i think really simplistic thinking and not willing to look at real issues like the lack of connectedness going back to what you said before and to the the nihilistic violence in fact sebastian if people really want to read about this nature of viol- of, of lone wolf violence Please, please, please read Sebastian Younger's book on tribe called Tribe. He talks about school shootings in depth from an anthropological perspective and how when you have a member of the tribe who is isolated and separated and feels unconnected and disconnected, they will they will act out in a nihilistic, destructive way against everybody because they feel so disconnected. And this happened well before school shootings, you know, this type of behavior is just on a much smaller scale in the shooting, you know, the weapons people have access to now makes the scale much riskier. But this type of behavior of nihilistic violence against your own tribe pre-exist, predated video games and predated guns. So I think the conversation is way more nuanced and way more complicated than simply blaming video games. And this is coming from someone who had a 25-year addiction to video games and violent video games, I should add. I'm so glad that you put it that way and brought that up because I think you're right. I think we have an unspoken massive mental health crisis that, and, and my take is one of the many factors that contributes is that lack of connection and the lack of true community. Um, people, we used to grow up close to family in neighborhoods surrounded by people who knew us and other people we could trust besides our immediate family. And to some degree, we've largely lost that. And for our family, we recently made a move um, several states away to a place where there was more community and we have those types of connections because I, I truly believe that is so important, especially for kids. And as we have kids in our family about to reach the teenage years, that was a priority for us. But as I hear you talk about this, and I'm so glad to hear that hopefully there's not really a correlation directly to really severe risky behaviors and and things as as severe as school shootings. But as you're just talking about other things, I'm like, those are risky behaviors too, like the lack of sleep. We know from a health perspective how much lack of sleep can change your brain, especially if you are adolescent or um, going through puberty and also just the screen time because I've done a lot of research on eye health and and brain health and looking at a glowing two-dimensional object for so many hours that's the same distance away. You actually, um, your eyes aren't engaging. They're not using all the muscles that they're supposed to and you can end up with uh, vision problems. And, and I think also too that you touched on are especially that social isolation and the lack of movement. Those are big problems. We know that statistically, especially for our children. They're not moving enough. They're not connected enough. They're not getting enough vitamin D because they're inside so much. So hearing you talk about this, I'm so glad it's not connected to the immediately risky behaviors, but I also hear so many small risky behaviors in there. And as a mom, my gut reaction is to go, well, I don't see any benefits to video games. And I just, I made a whole laundry list of potential problems. And so to me, the easy way is well, just let's just avoid video games. But at the same time, having a background in nutrition, I know that when you completely block something out and make it a and black and white, it can make it uh, more appealing to kids or more of a pull when they're older. So I'd love to hear your take on 
how you address that. And especially, is there any way to have healthy moderation? I had one reader say, um, please ask him how to approach gaming in a moderate way, because her point is that she wants her kids to be culturally literate. And part of that is gaming in today's world, but how to encourage moderation when that desire to be engulfed in the game is so strong. So I'd love to hear your take on that. Sure. Yeah. So there's a couple things you brought up to unpack. Um, so in terms of the risky behavior, so if so many of the arguments that those 5,000 minus three women gave me at the expo was, well, at least they're not doing drugs, risky sex or gang related behavior or other criminal mischief and because they're playing video games. So video games are used by parents as a legitimate lesser evil. And when I say legitimate, I actually do see their point because the, the other risky behaviors do have a much higher risk to them. I don't think it's risk-free as we've been talking about. And the degradation of sleep, of nutrition, of posture, of movement, of socialization, those are slow boil risks that accumulate over time, not the immediate kind of cathartic, catastrophic risks that are associated with those other behaviors. And um, I think your point of cultural literacy is very well taken and extremely relevant. And it's like movies, like what movies used to be or television shows used to be. Now video games are taking cultural dominance as a requirement for basic conversation, particularly amongst um, the generations, you know, 35 and younger who grew up on video games. So, uh, Kitty, was there another question in there aside from that I'm missing aside from how to do moderate gaming? Did I miss something? Is there another question in there or was that the, is that the main one? That's the main one. Is there a way to do it moderately? And do you see there being any downsides, especially like for my kids, they don't really have an interest in gaming um, with just avoiding it altogether, at least until... It's something that they are even interested in. Like, is there is there a minimum dose that they need to hit for cultural literacy or can they just avoid it? Sure. Okay. The concept of moderation is kind of a farce because you, how much everything in moderation, does that include moderation? Like, because moderation is, is, a, is a complete, uh, it's a complete farce because there is no way to compare how we live our life now to how we used to as tribal social human beings back, you know, several thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years ago. I mean, what is a moderate amount of cell phone use for a hunter gatherer? The question is absurd. So it's, it's like, we can't, we have to take moderation compared to what moderation compared to 10 years ago, to 20 years ago, to 50 years ago, to 50,000 years ago. So our people's definition of moderation is a moving target. So once people can can yoke onto comparing moderation to what, then the conversation can can start. And and it's I'm don't actually I don't actually have a good starting point because moderate moderate computer use in the 70s was basically isolated to military, government, and acad academics, whereas computer use now is everyone's issue. Uh, and prior to that, of course, there wasn't really any computer use of any appreciable amount. So what would be a moderate level for today's standards compared to, I mean, this is the problem compared to the nineties when it was just dial up, 
when I when I was really in online gaming, I don't know. Um, let's just let's just. Do you have a particular era you wanted to compare to? Uh, we'll just. What, what's your what's your era you're wanting me to compare to for moderation? I mean, I guess my only reference point would be. Oh gosh, I'm gonna sound old. Like over 20 years ago now, when my brother had the original classic NES system, and I think he had like Mario or something. And ironically, sure. that's the system we still have. And right now, it just collects dust um, because the kids have really no interest. But we have the not the new version of that, but the actual 30 year old version. Right. Okay. So I'd say for cultural literacy. Uh, and, and then it gets into another subject. Do you allow your kids to watch movies, you know, depending on how you parent and all the rest of it? There's, there's many different parenting philosophies on this. I mean, even it's like sugar. My my mother's parenting philosophy for good or ill, in my experience, it was for ill, is you can have one candy bar a day and not more. So that was her idea of moderation. And for me, that was actually pretty destructive because it's I got hit with all these chemicals and sugars and artificial sweeteners and flavorings and all the rest of it. And that was not good for my particular system, nor do I think it's good for anyone's system. But that was her idea of moderation. And in her world, that was moderation. And so I can see her side of it. So that that's that's what we're comparing to, except it's a digital candy bar versus a physical candy bar. So movies and television shows actually have a lot of cultural references to video games. And in some ways, you can get somewhat literate by watching movies and television. And I'm not saying you should now go watch movies and television to get literate in video games. It's like you're trading one thing for another. I think that there are, okay, so and this is getting, so I think the fastest way to get culturally literate, and this is dangerous territory because it can then lead into vicarious gaming. So that's, that's caveat, caveat, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. You can actually go onto YouTube and look up history of video games. And there's there's many different channels that have created really brilliant 5, 10, 15, 20 minute synopses of the entire video game history. You can look up like history of Zelda and understand the phenomenon of Zelda over its 25 plus year arc. You can look up uh, history of video games, the history of uh, online gaming, history of EverQuest, history of shooters, history of Mortal Kombat. I mean, there's certain key games that were real genre setters. Super Mario, Zelda, Final Fantasy, God of War, League of Legends, Fortnite, um, Mortal Kombat, uh, of course, was a massive cultural. They even had hearings in Congress over it. Counter-Strike. Doom was a massive one, and it's, and it's kind of originator- yet somehow less famous, um, called, um, Wolfenstein. You, you can look up like history of gaming. Uh, there's even like, uh, charts. There, there's a wonderful, uh, when I say wonderful, like well done history of gaming charts done by the electronic arts association or other video game websites. There's like timelines. And if you just spend you know, an hour reading over those charts and spend another three hours going over YouTube and the history of video games, you're going to get a very efficient, very effective cultural education without a lot of investment. Now, the, the risk, the risk, the real risk is that it can get people really interested in those games. So, so it's a trade-off. Do you culturally create cultural literacy at the risk of getting them interested? And that's something as parents you need to play off of. So there are very efficient ways to get literate, but there is some risk to that. In terms of moderation, um, I go back to 
those three signs that I mentioned before. If your child games longer than they sleep on any given day, that is too much by every single, no matter how you slice it. That, that is the single most rock solid sign of excess that I can think of. Um, never, ever, ever should the amount of time gaming exceed the amount of time sleeping. I think that's an iron law in my personal book. Then you're looking at binge gaming. Is Are they gaming more than four hours straight? I think if a parent is concerned about moderation, you should have keep that in mind as to absolutely avoid over four hours of gaming in one period. And you should absolutely avoid, if you're concerned about moderation, never letting your child game beyond 14 hours a week at meeting my made-up definition of uh, heavy gaming. Now, if you think about 14 hours, that's between a part-time and a quarter-time job in terms of time. So some people moderate based off of, is it a school night? Is it a weekend? Um, the time of day, how many hours. So, and it's also, what's your definition of a video game? Do you include social media as video gaming? So this is, again, the, the, the line is a moving target. I categorize video games as active screen activity, social media as mixed, could be passive or active. So as a parent, you have to decide, are you counting social media as part of the video game hours or not? Or are you doing something like I suggested in my survival guide for weekends and holidays? Are you giving more time based on the degree of social time and physical proximity to the person you're socializing? Are they just over the computer or are they sitting on the couch next to you gaming or on Facebook or whatever? So I, I think um, each parent has to make their own decisions but if you use those metrics as guideposts, four hours straight for binge gaming, the over 14 hours a week is having gaming, and the never sleeping less than the hours you game, and then just calibrate from there, I think that's a very uh, logical platform to start. All such good points. And I'll offer just from my personal take on it. Um, some advice or some considerations. And one that I, we've touched on, but I want to specifically mention is we know based on the research that children's brains are different than adult brains. They're still developing. There's a lot of neuroplasticity there. So I think we do have to be careful of what they are exposed to and at what age. And none of us would argue that, for instance, children should be exposed to porn or that they have to be exposed to fast food to be culturally literate, even though unfortunately those things are very pervasive in society. But I would say at the same time, we do have to educate them about those things and about the risk of those things. So perhaps that's an important thing is to have those grown-up conversations with your kids, especially if they're into these more um, addictive type of games, is just letting them understand that there are risks and also telling them to watch for these signs too, instead of just putting it in our court. This podcast is brought to you by Kettle and Fire. You may already know that this is my go-to bone broth because it is shelf-stable, it's easy to use, and it's delicious. But you may not know that Kettle and Fire just released brand new bone broth-based soups, which make it even more convenient to eat healthy on the go. Plus, they save a lot of time when you're trying to feed the whole family on a busy night, and they are delicious. They have miso, tomato, and butternut, and they're all really, really good. Plus, they have a 20-hour slow simmer process for their broth that extracts an insane amount of protein. 
10 grams per serving, and this creates a collagen-rich broth that is great for hair and skin and nails. My favorite part is it only takes a minute to heat up any of these broths or soup on the stove, and I can keep a case in my pantry so it's there anytime I need it. Right now, you can save 10% by going to kettleandfire.com forward slash mama, M-A-M-A. The discount is already built in, so just remember that link, kettleandfire.com forward slash mama. This episode is brought to you by Mother Dirt, a vital and unusual part of my skincare routine. Here's the deal. Most of us these days are too clean since modern hygiene can deplete beneficial bacteria on the skin. But bacteria are natural and they're vital to our health. Our gut needs bacteria and so does our skin, our largest organ. Mother Dirt has a mist called AO Plus Mist that helps restore good bacteria on the skin by using their patented ammonia oxidizing bacteria or AOB that consumes ammonia on the skin. A fun side effect, ammonia is the stinky part of body odor. So many people, including me, find they don't need to use deodorant as much. I love that all of their products are gentle and use only natural ingredients. They're plant-based, so they're safe for the whole family. You can save 20% on your first purchase um, by going to motherdirt.com forward slash wellnessmama and using the code FREESHIP20. Again, motherdirt.com forward slash wellnessmama and the code FREESHIP20 in all capital. And I also wonder if there are things like you know, not letting kids do video games too young, or at least until they've established a love of reading and having other hobbies and really strong connections in their in their actual life. So maybe they aren't as likely to be sucked into the video game world for connection. But also we've talked so much about what to look for, which is awesome. I'd love if you could also talk some about what to do for anyone listening who has maybe a teenager, but maybe a husband or even a wife or a parent who they see these signs of video game addiction in. What can we do to help someone once they've already gone down that road. Okay, so this this is this is an absolute minefield because now if you're talking about an addiction um, where where the behavior is compulsive and destructive, um, in fact, there's there's a book I highly recommend called "It's Not Okay to Be a Cannibal," and it's written by two um, interventionists by uh, Andrew Wainwright and Robert Poznanovich and. They replace the word addiction, addict, with the term cannibal, meaning that the, the the cannibal eats themselves alive and everything around them, and that's that's a sign of someone who's really addicted, where they're destructive to not only themselves and to those around them. And the the problem is is that there had there's a distinction between someone who needs help and someone who wants help. Very different very, very different um, situations. So if someone needs help but doesn't want the help, that's a problem. That's where intervention comes in, like forcibly confronting a person about their behavior to which there is a very high risk of blowback, which is like those three mothers that came to me in that expo saying that they're afraid of retribution on the part of their adult sons for being confronted about uh, video game use. Um, and that's a real, that's a real risk. And um, now with video games and, and so it's a different if it's a parent child situation, because as a parent, you have legal authority to intervene, whether they like it or not. Like, so if your child is underage, you as a parent can take it away and they can kick and scream and cry and sabotage and do whatever they want. But that's not illegal for you to physically intervene on their world 
because you have legal right as a parent. It gets a lot trickier if you're dealing with an adult and you don't have the right to go in and take their personal property away from them for their own good. So there, there's complexities based on the age of the person who has the problem and their situation. If someone has a problem, one of the things I'd recommend is, number one, you yourself get really educated on the subject matter so you can come at it from a really knowledgeable place, not, oh, I think you're playing too many video games, therefore you have to stop and you're ruining your life and all this. It's, it's like there's, there's a level of nuance in the back of your mind to understand all the complexities that go into someone's decision to play a lot of games. I write about this in my ebook and on my talk about on my YouTube channel and my articles. Like I, I really try to spell it out for people who are not familiar with the video game world, what it's actually like and what are the issues in, at hand. And that's why I wrote my ebook and, and made the audios and made the videos and so on and, and, and educate people on this because it's very confronting and uncomfortable and frankly really unpleasant like it was for me when my sister confronted me and my parents confronted me on it and they came at it from a very accusatory, angry, self-righteous and and blaming way which I absolutely pushed back on and gave them the silent treatment and was really rude and nasty to them because I felt like I was being attacked for the very thing that I was seeking, that I used to seek solace from the anxiety at home and the stress and bullying at school. Like they were taking away the thing that was my personal balm to my consciousness. So uh, I would recommend people get educated as much as they can first. And, and I've developed a huge number of resources to help people in that regard. The other thing is to possibly find a diplomatic way to share those resources with the people who are concerned. If someone wants help, that's pretty easy. Like, yeah, shameless self-promotion. Why don't you get a copy of Dr. Shea's ebook? Why don't you go onto his website and read his blogs or watch his videos or, or go, on a, go to YouTube and watch his, his videos on video game addiction or listen to the interviews or even this interview? There's, there, if they want help, it's very straightforward to, you don't have to be the expert. You can direct them to the expert, uh, whether it's this interview or my material or someone else's. So, so there's that. There's, there's that way. If they need help but don't want help, that gets tricky. Um, I have done interventions before with parents and teenagers, and because I know what video game addiction is because of my 25 year history. And I also understand the genres of the games people are playing. And I know when a gamer is lying to me about their use because I can read it. And I know I, I can, I can tell when they're, you know, they're, they're, they're lying about their usage. Like I know the questions to ask and know how to confront them on it. Not from a power over type of way. It's like, as a fellow gamer, like, come on, really? Like, let's, let's talk about this for real, like, and, and be able to engage them in a way that gets, gets them to think about all these different things. Like one example is I walked through all 12 of those signs without saying that they were signs of gaming disorder. I just asked, are you preoccupied with gaming? Do you ever like think about gaming when you're eating, like at meals? Do you ever miss dinners over gaming? Do you ever, like, I just walked through all the 12 signs and by the end of it, I says, well, do you realize you've answered yes to 10 of the past 12 questions? And it says, do you know what, what I was actually asking you? 
And I'm like, no, this is the actual tone. They go, no, I don't know. And I said, well, these were the 12 signs of gaming disorder. And you answer 10 out of 12 of them as yes. So would you now agree that you might have an issue with video games? And he went silent. And then he said, well, yeah, maybe. Like this is the first time he actually admitted, albeit reluctantly, that there might be a problem. And th this is what intervention looks like. It, it's a skillful way of engaging with someone who needs the help but doesn't want it from someone who's had the experience. And then that, that's difficult. It's, it's not easy and it's not guaranteed to work. But, you know, you're, you're dealing with the nature of addiction and, and it's, it's hard. It's very hard. And, and I don't envy anyone who has a true addict in their family. I was an addict and I don't envy what my parents and the uh, rest of my family went through. Yeah, that makes sense. And definitely, I think you're right that, that you have to address it in a compassionate and loving way and share your concern and hope that they want help because that seems like a very difficult situation if they don't, certainly. So I want to hear a random question and then I have a follow-up question for you um, to make sure everyone can find your work. But I love to ask people if there's a book that's had a, a tremendous influence on their life that they would recommend. And I know you've already shared a few books that you would recommend related to this topic, but is there a book um, perhaps not related to this that's had a big influence on your life? Uh, yeah, I mean the the first the first book that really put me on the trajectory towards being focused on natural health care. I mean, because I I thought I was going to be a doctor at age six. Like I knew I was going to be a doctor. Both my parents are doctors. My grandfather was a very famous doctor, and I knew I was going to be a doctor since a young child. But I didn't realize I was going to go into natural medicine until I was a teenager. When I read um, a book by Dr. Bernard Jensen, who's kind of the grandfather of naturopathy in the West. Um, his book, Dr. Jensen's Guide to Better Bowel Care. Now, I read this because I had terrible digestive problems uh, for over 10 years. And when I read this, it opened my eyes to the first model of holistic health using uh, digestion and bowel care as kind of the focusing point to then incorporate all these other aspects of holistic health, whether you movement, exercise, diet, sleep, you know, socialization, stress reduction, but, but using the gut as the focal point for discussion, but engaging in all the other aspects of natural health care. So that was, that was the book that launched my entire journey into natural medicine. Is it related to video games? Not directly, but it certainly was the biggest influence on my life. Awesome. And lastly, I feel like we could still talk about this topic for, you know, hours and share such amazing information. But for anyone listening who this has been an important starting point for them, where can they find you and the resources that you mentioned? And of course, I'll have links in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm. But how can they find out more about you and about this topic? Sure. At my website is drsamshay.com, D-R-S-A-M-S-H-A-Y.com. And you can go to the, just the main website and you'll see my video game ebook, my, my Unplug from Gaming Disorder ebook uh, right there front row and center. If people buy the ebook, I also throw in an audio version and a video walkthrough version as well. And I've also got uh, drsamshay.com forward slash gaming disorder, which is the collection of my writings on gaming disorder, uh, other interviews from our colleagues in the natural health space uh, on gaming disorder. I also have a two-minute trailer which explains my history in just two minutes uh, in a high-def, just a trailer of like this is my journey with uh, gaming disorder. 
And you can find the resources there. It's drsamshay.com forward slash gaming disorder. Um, I also have an online course, which is called uh, flourishoutofaddiction.com. Uh, and it's just all one word, flourishoutofaddiction.com. You can find those that link to that on my website as well. And that was a course I designed to go through uh, a modern way, that uh, a new paradigm to treat addictions with a particular focus the examples woven through the entire course on sugar and video games or subsets of food addiction and screen addiction. Now, the, the, the structure and framework that I teach there not only works for sugar and video games, but for food and tech and other addictions as well. But I use sugar and video games. Those were the two ones that I went through. It's also two that people can relate to if they because most people can relate to food addiction and some form of screen addiction, whether it's for themselves or watching someone else. So there's there's a lot of resources that are available, and I'm also available if people want to chat with me. There's a link to schedule um, a chat with me as well, and I'd be very happy to help people in whatever capacity um, that I can. Wonderful. And again, all those links will be in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm. So if you are jogging or driving, don't worry about writing them down. Um, but Dr. Shea, I feel like this was very educational for me. It's a whole world I didn't even really understand. And I think you're doing such important work. This is a truly an area our grandparents never had to face. This is a new concern for a lot of people. And you're doing such an amazing job of educating about it. And I really appreciate your time and your work and everything you've shared today. Thank you, Katie. And, and I, I really, I really genuinely appreciate your work. I, your, your website has been so, so incredibly helpful for my practice. Uh, directing people to, at a minimum, just the recipe section, and the amount of the amount of work that that has spared me um, in expertise and trying to come up with recipes has saved me hours and hours and hours of of labor and stress. And so, too, I'm more than happy to uh, reciprocate by offering my expertise in this uh, particular arena. And and just you know, what I love about this community of us natural healthcare practitioners is that we're synergistically supporting one another. And to help everyone who has a need in the natural health space. And so I, I thank you for providing such an amazing platform because I know I use it regularly with my practice. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I hope to see you again next time on the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.